I want to talk to you about a story out of the New Testament that uh, is one that I've not heard preached on. Uh, when I was a young man, a friend of mine and I were visiting, and he said, I've got a question for you. I said, okay. He said, why doesn't anybody ever preach out of the book of Philemon? He called, we called it Philemon back then. We didn't know any better. And I said, book of Philemon? What are you talking about? I didn't even know it was in the Bible. And I said, I don't know. Let's read it. So we got it. And we read it. And he looked at me and I looked at him. And it's just like this letter from Paul to this guy that he converted his slave. And we went, oh. Okay, that's why no one preaches out of it. There's nothing in there. And uh, I, it, it just kind of stayed like a splinter in my mind, just kind of always there for several years. And finally, I had an opportunity where I was off and uh, I was at a, in a two or three week work at a place and I had a lot of time by myself. And I thought, you know what? I am going to figure out why Philemon is in the Bible. And so I began to study Philemon, hoping that I could get something out of that book. And I want you to know, I came out of that with a conviction that in my mind, this may be the most beautiful story of forgiveness in the entire Bible. It is a tremendous message. It's a message that calls for what I would call just a bit too much love. Just more love than the average person or the average Christian or you and I maybe at times will feel like we have. Ah, there's the question, did you think about Jesus? Let me give you a little history or a little background. And we won't take the time to read all this because it's really it's involved in the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians and a little bit out of Revelation and Acts chapters 19 through 26 and we don't have time to read all of that. So let me just give you some basic background of what's going on here. The Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. And on this missionary journey, he has come to this place called Ephesus, which you see right here on the map, okay? And in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul stays there for two years in one place. And that was pretty unusual for Paul. The Bible tells us that he set up in a school. He evidently rented a room in a school, and he preached the gospel in that room in that school for two years. And he was successful. The Bible says that the gospel was published throughout all the area of Asia there, which is this whole area right out in here. I mean, the, the word was spread lots and lots of places. Now, while this is going on, we know that at some point there's this guy by the name of Philemon and his wife Aphia and his son Archippus, and they live up here in... One of these little cities right there. There were three cities that were all together. They were about a hundred miles inland from Ephesus. And they were tri-cities. Cities that were all together. And all of them you've heard of if you've read your Bible much. There's Colossae. There's Laodicea. And there's Hierapolis. And those three cities are all mentioned in your Bible. There were churches ultimately in those cities. At this point in the story though, there's no church in Colossae. 
You've just got this guy named Philemon. Now, one of the things we don't know, we don't know why he went to Ephesus. We just know he did. I don't know if he had heard that Paul was down there preaching and he said, I'm going to go hear this. Or if he was just down there on business. We know he was a wealthy businessman. We don't know a lot of the details. What we do know is he ended up in Ephesus hearing the Apostle Paul preach and the Apostle Paul preached and converted him and a guy by the name of Epaphras, which you'll find mentioned in your Bible several times, who was from Colossae. And these people are converted and they go back to Colossae and Philemon says, you know what? We're going to start a church in Colossae and it's going to meet in my house. And the church in Colossae met in the home of this man, Philemon, who was this wealthy business owner from the area. Now, the Apostle Paul stayed here for a couple of years and he preached. And then the Apostle Paul went on back to Jerusalem. And he traveled, Jerusalem's way down here. He got back to Jerusalem. Once he's in Jerusalem, the Apostle Paul was arrested. He was put in jail. And he was tried by Agrippa. He stood in front of Felix. And he finally appealed to Caesar. Because Paul was a Roman citizen. And so he appealed to Caesar. When he appealed to Caesar, what that meant was that as a Roman citizen, if you were being charged with something and you didn't think you were getting a fair deal, you could appeal to Caesar, and your case, because you were a Roman citizen, would actually be taken all the way to Caesar himself. And we know that the Apostle Paul ultimately stands in front of Nero, who was a Caesar of Rome. He's taken from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. Now, in the meantime, this man Philemon and his wife and his son and Epaphras are building the church here in Colossae. And they're teaching people about Jesus and the church is growing and they're converting people. And there's one thing you need to know about Philemon and about this world that they lived in is as a wealthy business owner, Philemon was also a slave owner. He owned slaves. That was common in this part of the world at this time. In fact, there were a little over 200 million people in the Roman Empire. Of 200 million people, 70 million of them were slaves. Okay? Now when I think about slavery, I think about people chained together out in the cotton fields, you know, chopping cotton, and I'm going to knock that over. Chopping cotton and singing spirituals and being beaten when they didn't do... You know, that's, that's an American view of slavery. Slavery in the Roman Empire was largely not that way. I'm not saying there were no, no slaves. I'm sure there were some in the fields and some in the galleys of the ships and all. But, but by far, the majority of slaves in the Roman Empire were you. They were just common blue-collar, white-collar workers. Wealthy people... If they needed employees for their business, they didn't go hire someone. They went and bought people to work in their business. That's the way their economy worked. Okay? And they would purchase these slaves and not only the blue-collar workers, but they would also purchase what we call white-collar. Accountants and school teachers and doctors and people who had what we call white-collar jobs. 
Now, as a result of that, in the Roman Empire, as a, in large degree, slaves were treated really well. Because, you know, if I've got a teacher that's teaching my kids, I'm going to treat him pretty good because I want him to do a good job teaching my kids. I want him to be able to do that effectively. And they had a lot of legal protections. You couldn't just randomly beat your slaves for no reason in the Roman Empire. But one thing that is true in the Roman Empire, it's true anywhere, and that is that when you have three people, if one of them is a slave, the other two are afraid of the one that's the slave. Because you see in the Roman Empire, one thing that was true of them is if a slave could organize a revolt and all the slaves revolted, there's no way Rome could beat 70 million combatants. So it was a very serious crime in the Roman Empire for you to run away, for you to flee, for you to leave your, your place of employment, a place of ownership, for you to take off. They had very strict penalties for that. One of the penalties was that you, the law demanded you to be branded in your forehead, a brand, like, like you do to cows, in your forehead with their equivalent to a letter F. You know why they would do that? Well, think about it. If you're a slave and you're at market with the master and you're thinking about running away and you walk by a booth where someone's selling something and you look in and that guy's got this big old swollen, welt, burned F in the middle of his forehead. It's a pretty good deterrent to keep people from running away. Another thing it did is it identified the slaves who were likely to run away. Another thing that happened in the Roman Empire was if you were a runaway slave, your legal protections were removed. Your master could do to you whatever he wanted. If he wanted to beat you, he could beat you. If he wanted to crucify you, he could have you crucified. He could do whatever he wanted to you because your legal protections had been removed. Now, I tell you all of that to tell you the story of the book of Philemon. There's this slave that Philemon has. And this guy's name is Onesimus. And Onesimus, this guy is, he's the kind of slave, you've, you've seen employees like this that work just hard enough to keep from getting fired. You know what I'm talking about? They do just enough to keep the job. This guy was useless. He was absolutely the sorriest slave. Now, I... I can't imagine Philemon being a godly man not teaching the gospel to his slaves, not having his slaves there around where they heard the gospel. But we don't know the details about that. What we do know is at some point Onesimus got desperate to the degree that he said, you know what, I am getting out of here. Uh, my life is more than being a slave. I am not going to stay for this. If I could just get away from here. If I could just get... And he did. He ran. He ran and you know where he went to when he ran? He went to the same place that all the runaway slaves in the Roman Empire went. They all went to Rome. That was the land of promise. That was the, the center of the universe. And he went to Rome. Now, you know America has a lot of people 
who try to run away from their lives, don't they? I mean, some people just disappear and everybody wonders where they are and they find them years later doing something different. But I mean, a lot of people. One time I was in Pampa, Texas, and I was having my hair cut. This was years ago when I was, before I married Carrie, in fact. But I lived in Dallas and I was talking to this young lady who was cutting my hair and she was telling me, oh, this dead-end little town I'm in, you know. She said, if I could just get to Dallas, then I'd do something, you know. And that's the attitude this guy had. If I could get out of here and just get to Rome. And I want you to know, that's about 1,200 miles. And you didn't get an airplane ticket. You had to walk, or you had to ride a donkey or a horse. I doubt he could get a horse, or get on a boat. Very difficult. And you know what he found when he got to Rome? He found exactly what you'd find if you ran away to Hollywood, which is where everybody in America used to run to, right? Runaways on every corner. Rome was packed full of runaways. People trying to run away. And guess what? It wasn't the answer to his dreams. In fact, he ran into a dead end. He ran into a brick wall when he got to Rome. He had no way to live. Now, the Bible doesn't fill in these details, but for some reason, in some way... Guess who he runs into? The Apostle Paul, who is now in Rome under house arrest. He has his own house. He's able to have people come and go, but he has to stay there at the house. And somewhere or another, Onesimus finds his way to Paul. Now, I've wondered if he remembered Philemon talking about Paul. And he finds out Paul's there. I don't know. Maybe he remembered that Philemon was a Christian and they were good people and that's where he went for help. I don't know. I do know though that he meets Paul and guess what happens? Paul converts him. He teaches him the gospel. And Philemon is a changed man. He's got a reason for living now. He's got a purpose for life. He's got meaning and understanding of his life. And there's value in life today. But there's still this problem back in Colossae. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter back to Philemon. Now I want you to imagine just for a moment that you are Philemon. You've been converted. You had this old sorry, no good slave. He ran away. Probably took money from the safe when he went. And, you know, good riddance. <laughs> I mean, he was sorry anyway, but, you know, maybe if you're especially godly in your heart, you're going to say a prayer that God protects him and, and leads him to somebody who will teach him the gospel. But he's gone. And you're sitting there one morning having your morning cup of coffee for those of us who drink coffee or orange juice if you don't drink coffee. And you hear a knock on the door. And you go to the door and you open it up and there on the front porch of your house stands that old sorry, no good runaway slave. I mean, he's square back in your life and you don't have any choice in the matter. Before you can say anything, he hands you a letter. And you grab that letter and you break it open and you look and that letter is written to you by the guy who converted you to Jesus Christ. That's where we get to the book of Philemon. I want us to look at what he says. You begin to read and he says, after his greeting, he says this, 
Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such a one as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He says, I could command you to do what I'm going to talk about, but instead I'm just going to ask you to in love. And I'm an old man in prison and I'm just writing this just to ask you to do this. He says, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. So you're reading along and Paul says, I could command you to do this, but I'm just going to ask you to. I'm asking you on behalf of this old sorry, no good slave that ran away, that I converted to Jesus Christ. Well, what's Paul asking? He says, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again. He said, this guy, I know, Philemon, I know he was useless. He was absolutely sorry and useless. But now he's useful. Now, Jesus has changed him. And he's worth a lot, not just to you, but he's worth a lot to me. He says, Thou therefore receive him that is my own bowels, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. So what he says is this, I want you to receive this guy back. And you receive him, you receive him like you would me. He said, I really wanted to keep him with me. I wanted to keep him with me so he could continue because he's useful to me. And he was taking care of me just like you would if you were here. But you're not here. He said, but without thy mind I would do nothing that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. He says, I wanted to keep him, but he doesn't belong to me. He's your slave. And I didn't want to keep him without your permission and you telling me to do that. So I've sent him home. And I've asked you to accept him when he gets home. Now, let me ask you this. Do you forgive this guy? Do you welcome him back? Yes? No? Can I get a head nod yes or no? You going to forgive this guy? Doesn't seem like any big deal, does it? I mean... Okay, Paul converted him, forgive him. We move on. I want you to know this was a big, big deal. I'm going to give you four reasons that he should not forgive Onesimus. Reason number one, Philemon's other slaves. You know when he's on that front porch, down in the slave quarters, you know, they already know he's back, right? Hey, you know who I saw? I think it's Onesimus. He's on the porch. I don't know. It didn't look like they'd arrested him. I don't know what he's back for. They've heard. Now, I want you to think about this. If you forgive this guy who probably stole money from you and ran away and went to Rome for a while, and now he's come back and you just forgive him, do you know what's going to happen every time one of your slaves wants a vacation? He's going to steal some money from you and go to Rome, and then he's going to come back, and he's going to expect you to forgive him. Because, hey, you know, Master's got to forgive us. He's a Christian. It's going to destroy his authority with the people that he's in command over. 
I mean, this isn't something to do lightly. You've got to think how this is going to affect everyone else. But that's not the only reason. The church in Colossae was in a wealthy suburban town. Colossae was where all the wealthy business owners who owned businesses in Laodicea and Hierapolis lived. It was a wealthy suburb. Many of the other people in that congregation were slave owners too. He's not the only one. Now you see the spot that puts Philemon in, don't you? Because if you forgive your slaves, what about me? I mean, if you want to have that problem in your household, with your business, that's up to you. But if you forgive your slave, my slaves are going to think, I've got to forgive them too. And now all of a sudden, what do we do? Now we have got a world of trouble. We've got problems. You want to talk about pressure from the brethren to not do something. You can't do this, Philemon. I mean, you've got to at least have him branded. You can't do this. It's going to mess up everything. And now these slaves are going to think they don't have to do what we tell them to do. It was a problem. That's not the only problem. Evangelism in Colossae. I want you to think about this. You're trying to evangelize slave owners. It's hard enough to teach people about Jesus. And it's hard enough to get people to love one another. You know, in Rome, love was not a highly respected uh, attitude. It wasn't a highly respected emotion. The Romans didn't think highly of love. And uh, I can remember reading some of the historical documents. One of them in particular stands out where this guy's talking about Christians. And he says, these Christians are so crazy. They love one another before they've even met. It's hard to evangelize in a community like that. And now on top of that, you want us to go tell all these slave owners in this town that if you become a Christian, now you've got to forgive your slaves. It'll never work. The church will never grow. You can't grow a church like that. It's going to destroy our Facebook outreach. <laughs> you can't put that online. It's going to mess everything up. Nobody's going to want to do it. I mean, there's some pretty good reasons. And I, these aren't crazy reasons. These are, I mean, real things that this guy had to think about. But it gets worse. Because, you remember verse 8? Paul did not command him to do it. You see, that was his out. He could stand here and go, listen guys, I agree with you, but what can I do? The apostle said I have to forgive him. Right? That was his out. And he doesn't have an out. In fact, what the apostle said is, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. You see, what he did is he said, I'm just going to ask you to do this. I'm just going to beg you to do this. I'm just going to request that you do this. I'm not telling you you have to. Now, you know what he did by doing that is he put the monkey square on the back of Philemon. 
Philemon, if he chooses to forgive, has to stand in front of all of his slaves. He's got to stand in front of all the members of the church there. He's got to stand in front of the community and go, you know what? I am forgiving a slave. Because I believe that's right and that's what should be done. That's a lot to ask. I mean, he's going to put the, ch the, the church in a hurt. You know, one of the things about the Roman Empire and the slavery is although they treated them pretty well, they didn't consider slaves to be people on the same level that we're people. I mean, if you look, they had insurance back then. Can you believe that? In Rome, they did. And they would list things, their possessions on their insurance lists. And they would list the citizens of Rome and then all the freemen of the house. And then they would list what they call living machines. And that included donkeys and all their beasts of burden and slaves. They considered them living machines. They didn't even consider them people like we're people. The equal. You know, my car is a machine. It's not a living machine, but it's a machine, right? I take care of my car. I change the oil. I got it washed today. Thank you very much. Did a good job. But you know, if my car breaks down on me, I'm not going to get here and tell you, yeah, I was on my way and my car broke down, but I forgave it. <laughs> You don't forgive a machine. That's insane. It doesn't make any sense. And in the world they lived in, for him to stand and be asked by the Apostle Paul to stand up and say, I'm going to forgive because I believe that's right and that's what should be done. This was a high demand. A very high demand. 1 Thessalonians talks about this kind of love. That's required. He says, the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. Now that word increase is a banker's term and it's a term used to describe interest that you earn on money that you put in the bank. You know, you deposit money and you earn interest on that. Okay, that's what that word increase means. And what he's saying by that is, I want your love to grow. I want your love to be the kind of love that begins and it grows and it grows and it grows. You see that in your life, don't you? Don't you see your love grow for people? I had been to the church here one time before this week. I've known a lot of you. Some of you better than others. But I want you to know I've been here now since Sunday and my love for you has grown. It has. I, I love all of you more than I did when I got here. That happens when Christians are together. Our love grows. But that's not the only thing this verse says. He says, the Lord make you to increase and to abound in love one toward another. Now that word abound is really interesting. It's a fascinating word to me. The word abound is used two other times in your New Testament. It's used when Jesus fed the 5,000. And you remember, if you know the story, He fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fishes. And when it was over, they took up 12 baskets of leftovers after it was over. 12 baskets of leftovers. The Bible says in your King James, it says, over and above. That's this word, abound. It literally means just too much. 
To have too much of something is to abound. The other place it's used is when the prodigal son is in the far country and he wakes up in the pig pen. And he says, how many of my father's servants have enough and to spare? That means they've got too much. You know what it is? It's Thanksgiving dinner. You know Thanksgiving dinner when you pull up and there's a table full of food and everyone at the table eats and eats and eats and eats till we're about to burst and we scoop back and the table's still covered with food. That's the idea here. It's you've got a glass of water and you're pouring water in, or a glass, and you pour water into this glass and it gets up to the top and it just pours over the edges and pours out all over the table. You got too much. He says, I want your love to grow, but I want you to have the kind of love. It's just ridiculous how much you love each other. It's just too much. There's just no reason for it. It's not explainable. That's the kind of love that I want you to have, and it's the kind of love that's required for you to forgive in a situation like this. I want you to notice what he tells them in Ephesians 4. By the way, when Paul was in Rome and he wrote these letters, he wrote Colossae, he wrote Laodicea. We don't have that letter. It doesn't exist anymore. Okay? He also wrote Ephesus. And then he wrote this letter to Philemon. These four letters. And he sent Tychicus and, Phil- or, and Onesimus to bring these letters. You know where they landed? The first place they landed was Ephesus. And Paul knows what he is asking Philemon to do is going to affect not just Philemon, not just the church at Colossae, but the church in that whole part of the world. Look at what he tells the church at Ephesus. He tells them that they are to forgive one another even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. He says, I want you to forgive each other the very same way that God forgave you. There's a pattern to forgiveness. Now, let me tell you why I'm talking about this subject tonight, okay? The reality is, anytime you've got a group of people this size, there's someone here who needs to forgive somebody. I mean, as soon as we started talking about forgiveness, you probably thought about them, didn't you? You know exactly what shelf they're on back at the house, mentally speaking. And it's hard. And we talk about forgiving. And you go, yeah, I know. But I'm going to tell you something. You don't know what they did to me. It's hard. It requires a tremendous amount of love. Wouldn't it be amazing if you could learn how to forgive? You can. The Bible tells us specifically how you can forgive. And I promise you this, as we go through this next little bit, if you will do this, you can forgive anyone for anything. Because this is God's pattern of forgiveness. It's the way He forgives us. He says, you forgive one another even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Okay, so how does God forgive us? Well, let's look at that. God forgives us. You've got God up here. And you've got a sinner, and you've got you. This person right here is a no-good scoundrel. They have done something to you that is sinful, it is evil, it is wrong, they have hurt you, and there was no reason for it. 
And there's no excuse for it. And maybe they're not even repentant of it at the moment. They did something terrible. They're a sinner in the eyes of God. Now what does God think about that when someone treats somebody else that way? Think about what was done to you. What does God think about what they did to you? Well, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That God's wrath is revealed upon sin. You know what? It's not okay with God for somebody to sin against you. God doesn't just look the other way. It matters to God. God's wrath is revealed against sin. You see, He has tremendous wrath against all sin. My sin and your sin and the sin of whoever has sinned against you. God has wrath against sin. He hates sin. He despises sin. Sin is what's going to cause Him to send people to hell. God hates sin. But you know who else hates that sin? You hate that sin, don't you? I mean, what they did to you, you hate it. Makes you so angry. It makes you hurt down deep inside. And your wrath, not only is the wrath of God revealed against that sin, but your wrath is revealed against that sin. Now let me ask you this. You know enough about the Bible to know this answer. Why does God forgive sin? Upon what basis does God forgive sin? Well, the basis that He forgives sin on is the basis of the death of Jesus Christ for sin. Jesus died and paid the penalty. He says in Peter that Jesus bore our sins in His own body on the cross. What that means is that the punishment that you deserve for your sin, Jesus took that punishment. The things that you did that were wrong and evil, and you should be punished for, Jesus Christ took that punishment. So God's wrath, when it comes down from heaven toward the sinner, it actually falls on Jesus Christ. Because every punishment that sinner deserved, if he's a forgiven sinner, that punishment falls on Jesus and He paid it at the cross. That's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians that He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. You see, God put your sin on Jesus, and He punished Jesus for your sin. We understand that, don't we? That's the gospel. The good news that Jesus paid for our sin. But I want you to look at this. He says, you forgive each other, the very same way that God forgives sin. How does God forgive it? He forgives it on the basis of Jesus. You see, when Jesus died for sin, He didn't just die for vertical sin. He died for horizontal sin. He didn't just die for the sin that I commit against God. He died for the sin I commit against you. God sent His Son to die for all sin and to pay the penalty for all sin. And you say, yeah, I understand that, but you don't know what they did to me. No, I don't. You say, you know, for what they did, they deserve to be branded. And Jesus Christ was branded. He paid for that sin. 
Well, you know, they ought to at least be whipped. Jesus was whipped. Well, you know, there's some people that would crucify them for what they did. And Jesus was crucified. You see, Jesus died to pay for sin. And He paid for all sin. And when I look at you, the person who sinned against me, and I look at that and I go, well, the death of Jesus may have been good enough for God to forgive you, but it ain't good enough for me. Do you see the hypocrisy in that? Do you see the failure in that? Because if the death of Jesus isn't good enough to pay for your sin, is it good enough to pay for mine? No. And yet we know that it is. Does this make sense? Are you all understanding what I'm saying? Jesus didn't just die for us to be right with God, but He died for us to be right with one another. Jesus gave His prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. You know it, right? The only part of that He commented on when it was over was forgiveness. You know what He said? He said, if you won't forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. And I'll tell you why that's the case. Because if I refuse to forgive, what I am saying to God is the death of your Son is not good enough to pay for sin. And if the death of His Son isn't good enough to pay for sin, in my eyes, He will not use it to pay for my sin. I say, well, I understand the theology. I mean, I understand the point you're making. But you just don't understand how bad I was hurt. I mean, every time I think about it, it turns my stomach. And if you're expecting me to walk out of here and go hug them and pat them on the back and say, it's okay, that ain't happening. I just cannot do that. You know, one of the problems we have in America today, and I guess probably all over the world, is we have a tendency to read our current culture back into the Bible when we read it. You know, when the Bible talks about forgiving, when the Bible talks about fixing a problem between two people that requires forgiveness, He doesn't ever say that I need to feel good about you. He doesn't ever say that I need to tell you it was okay what you did because the truth is what you did wasn't okay. That's the reason we have a problem. That's the reason I'm so hurt and angry because it wasn't okay what you did. God never asks you to hug them and say, it's okay what you did to me. What God asks you to do is to forgive the same way God forgives. Does God look at you when you've committed sin and go, ah, that's okay? No, because sin isn't okay. Well, what does He do? God says this. Here's how He describes His forgiveness. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. That is the forgiveness of God. I will not remember their sin, their iniquity anymore. Now, what does that mean? 
How do you do that? You know what that is, really? Instead of a feeling, that's a promise, isn't it? I won't remember your sin anymore. That's a promise that God made. In fact, when you study the Bible, you will learn that forgiveness is always a promise. It's never a feeling. And one of the reasons that we fail to forgive is we think we can't forgive until we feel good about the person. And that's not true. What's true is you forgive by making a promise and keeping that promise. And that's this promise right here. I'm not going to remember your sin against you anymore. And it involves three particular things. And here are the three things you can do to keep that promise. You can make it and you can keep it. Number one, I won't bring it up to you anymore. I am not going to keep saying, yeah, I forgave you, but I remember what you did. That's not forgiveness. You know, when I was in my car on the way here, I had quite a little drive, and I talked to the Lord some in the car on the way here. And you know what He didn't do? He did not say to me, hey, when you get there, I forgave Him, but I just want you to know what Brandon did. <laughs> Back when he was in school, but... That's not what God did. When you pray, does, does He remind you of what you did? Does He say, yeah, I'll forgive you, but He doesn't. Number one, I'm not going to bring it up to you anymore. Number two, I'm not going to bring it up to other people. I'm not going to tell other folks about it. God didn't tell me about your sin. He doesn't tell you about my sin. That's not the way God works. When He forgives sin, He doesn't bring it up anymore. He doesn't remember it against you anymore. Now, not that He doesn't remember that it happened, but He doesn't remember it against you. He doesn't hold it against you anymore. And that involves, I'm not bringing it up to you, and I'm not bringing it up to anyone else. You know, I do some marriage counseling. And in marriage counseling, you know, people get in these big fights, and they do what I call gunny sacking. You know what gunny sacking is? Gunny sacking is when you live your life together and he does this wrong. He's late for dinner and she didn't have dinner ready and we just fill our gunny sack with all these little things and then we have our big fight and I go, oh yeah, and I grab that bag and I just dump it out on the table. Look at all of you. You remember when you... That's not forgiveness. You don't bring it up to him anymore. You just never mention it again. Now you can do that. You don't have to feel good about what they did to never mention it again, do you? You don't ever mention it again. Don't ever say, yeah, I would do this with you, but I don't know, after, what, after our history, you just don't bring it up anymore. You don't tell other people about it. You don't warn other people. Say, well, you know... If you want to do that, but I just be careful about that person if I was you because that's not the promise. The promise is I don't tell you, I don't tell other people, and thirdly, and this is the most difficult, I won't dwell on it in my own mind. Now that's hard. Talked to a lady one time who, after just a little visiting, it was evident that she was very bitter very bitter about something. And so I asked her, I said, has anyone ever wronged you? And she stopped, she said, oh yes. She said, I have been wronged terribly. And I began to try to talk with her about forgiveness. And she interrupted me and she said, oh no, no, wait. I forgave them. I forgave them. 
but I think about it every day. You know, that's not forgiveness. God does not look down at heaven and look at you and go, yeah, buddy, I forgave you, but blood like God. That's not the way God forgives. He doesn't dwell on it in his own mind. Now, you say, I've tried to get it out of my mind, and it just keeps coming back. It just keeps coming back to my mind. Yeah, you know what? When it first, when it's really raw, you may have to push it out of your mind 60 times in 60 seconds. But if you'll do that, maybe in an hour or two, it'll only be 59 times in 60 seconds. And you keep doing it, and it'll get to where it's only 50 times in 60 seconds. And if you continue to do that, you continue, you never think about it. When you push it out of your mind and refuse to think about it, you know what that leads to? You forget stuff you don't think about, right? You forget that it happened. A few years ago, my brother and I were talking. He said, do you remember that time that I broke your, whatever it was that he broke? He said, you were so mad at me because that was your favorite. I'm going, man, I don't even remember that. I, 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 you know why I don't remember? It's because I hadn't thought about it in 30 years. That's what happens. Now, brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter what they did to you. You can keep that promise. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. But you can keep that promise. You can never bring it up to them again. You can never tell anyone else about it again. And you can refuse to let your mind dwell on it. And let your mind run on that over and over and over. You can forgive. There's one last story I want to close with. And that is when Jesus was feeding the 5,000. You know, he was there. There were thousands of people around. There was no food and, and the apostles are there. And I want you to imagine just for a moment that you're one of the apostles. Maybe you're Andrew. And you're there and the Lord says, tell everybody to sit down. And everyone sits down and he says, we have any food? You're going, Lord, it would take a year's wages to feed all these people. You send them away. And he said, no, no, no. Have them all sit down. We have any food at all. Well, there's a little boy over here that has two fish and five loaves. Now, this is a little boy's lunch. This, he's not carrying big loaves of, you know, and huge fish thrown up over his shoulder. I mean, this is a little boy's lunch. He's got five little hard rolls and two fish. You'd probably get a better appetizer at, at Red Lobster than what he had. He says, bring that to me. And Jesus takes the fish and he takes the loaves. And you're watching because you've seen Jesus do some amazing things and you don't know what's fixing to happen. And he breaks it into pieces and he says, line up here, guys. You know, So you all stand there and line up facing everyone. And he walks by and he puts a piece of bread and a piece of fish in your hand. And he goes to the next guy and he does that to all the apostles. You're going, okay. Well, we're going to eat and everybody watch. <laughs> what's going to happen here? And he says, go feed them. You mean go feed them? I can't do that. I mean, I've just got this little piece of bread and this little piece of fish. I can't. I can't do that. Go feed them. Okay, you're the Lord. 
So you take your little piece of bread and you break off a crumb and you dab a little fish juice on it and you give it to the first one and you go to the next one and you go to the next one and you go to the next one and after a little bit you go, you know, enough of this charade and you start tearing off bigger pieces and giving them, here, have two pieces and, and we need to go back to the start and give them some really this time. And you start giving food away and giving food away and giving food away and before you know it, You've given away more food than you could ever have carried. You've given away enough to feed thousands. You could have fed millions with that bread and fish, couldn't you? You realize that you hold in your hand an eternal piece of bread and an eternal piece of fish. Now let's just suppose that Thomas, the doubter that he was, just stood up at the front and he said, I ain't going out in that crowd with my my little bit of bread and fish, and you get finished feeding thousands of people, and you come back up, and you hold out your hand, and Thomas holds out his, who's got the most in it? You still got just as much as you started with. Now my analogy is this. You've probably already made the connection. Jesus Christ hung on the cross, and He looked at the people who were murdering Him. And He said, Father, forgive them. Jesus could do that because He's the Son of God. But then He comes to you and He says, go forgive them. And you go, no, I can't do that, Lord. I don't have the kind of love you've got. I mean, you're the Lord, but I, I can't do that. He said, forgive them. You're going, I, I can't. I don't, have enough, I don't have enough love in me to do that. Forgive them. And so you make the promise. You don't bring it up to them. You don't bring it up to others. And you quit dwelling on it in your own mind. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find the truth that the Bible says the eternal love of God has been shed abroad in your hearts. And the truth is, as a Christian, God puts His love in you. And you have enough love that you can forgive the people who are murdering you if you need to. Because you're forgiving them with the love of God that's been put in you. And you may stand here and go, I can't do it, I can't do it. And if you just stand there and hold on to your little piece of love, you're going to have a hard heart and you'll never forgive. But if you will do what the apostles were asked to do, and if you will do what God tells you to do through Jesus, and that you look at that person you go, you know what you did was terrible, but Jesus paid for that, and that's good enough for me. And I'm going, to keep the, I'm going to keep that promise. And if you'll do that, you can forgive anyone of anything. Because it doesn't depend on you and your feelings and, and how good you are. 